Welcome to Below the Line. This is where we talk about making movies from the crew perspective. My name is Skid, and I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years. Now I'm not. Today we're talking about Cellular. It's a 2004 action film helmed by stuntman turned director David R. Ellis and starring Kim Basinger, Bill Macy, Jason Statham, and an early career Chris Evans. Over Rotten Tomatoes, it scores 55%, and the critics' consensus reads... Though it's gimmicky and occasionally feels like a high-end cell phone ad, Cellular is also an energetic and twisty thriller. But my guests today aren't concerned about what the critics thought. Uh, We're here to talk about what it was like putting it together. I've got two friends on the show today. First is Eric Pott. Eric, welcome. Hey, good morning. According to IMDb, you're known for Chain Reaction, Snakes on a Plane, Dragonfly and Cellular, which we'll be talking about today. And I know you're currently working on uh, NCIS Los Angeles as a first AD and occasional director. That is me. But with a resume like that, I should have followed you out of the industry. You know what I'm saying? Hey, it's, so, it's, it's never too late to switch things up. Um, I, I have a string of features that uh, nobody saw and ended many careers. And then I uh, switched over to television so I could see my kids once in a while. So that explains the last decade of my life on uh, NCIS. But, uh, you know, TV is the place to be right now. So I'm kind of lucky, I think. All right. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Eric. And on cellular, the other point I want to make is you were the key second AD at the time. And I think this is the project where we met, correct? I was actually trying to figure out that myself. So I, I went back and pulled it up and darned if you aren't right, because after that, we pulled you in on Just Like Heaven the next year or a year or two after that. So Yes. We're also joined today by Scott Buckwald, property master. Scott, welcome to Below the Line. Hey, Skid. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, glad you could join us. You and I actually met even before that. We met in 1999, I think, on the set of Panic. Um, yes, also with William H. Macy. Uh, but IMDb, so if I can pull up some things from your resume as well, uh, it says you're known for The Prestige, Race to Witch Mountain. That's the version with The Rock. Sell you yes. again. Oh, and then one of my personal favorites, uh, Piranha 3D. Any other favorites of yours? Just finished doing Queen of the South, which I've absolutely loved. Did uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles. And Mighty Wind was one of my favorites. Absolutely loved doing that. The same as, the same as Eric. I started doing more TV so I could be with my son. Because it seemed like everything I was doing feature-wise was taking me out of town. Yeah, uh, 100%. And my little snobbery about, oh, I don't do television, that went away. And the one, thing, the one thing I will say, which is a good point, the snobbery issue, I found that when all I was doing was features, there was a definite snobbery. And when I decided to go into television, I had no trouble getting TV jobs. In fact, prop masters at the prop house would kind of give me a hard time. And what they would say is they hate when you feature guys or us feature guys decide to do TV because if we have a theatrical feature resume, it tends to be more impressive. I've found in the last years that I've been doing TV that really the reverse is true. On a feature, I could have eight weeks to prep a 100-page script before we start shooting. On TV, I have maybe five days to prep a 50-page script. Then we shoot the whole thing in seven days. So the turnaround time is far less. The amount of money is far less. So Doing TV, I find a lot more difficult and a lot more challenging. I think if you could do TV, doing features is a piece of cake. I, I'm I'm going to agree 100%. I'm just saying, you know, when we were feature guys looking at it, we're like, 
that's TV, you know, it's over there. Right. Second tier guys, they can't get the feature jobs. And then, you know, you flip over to TV and, you know, you're crushing eight pages a day and you're trying to make something that looks as good as what you're seeing down at the Cineplex, but you've got no money and no time. From a, right. from a personal and artistic standpoint, you know, I find that doing television is far more rewarding than doing a feature because A, what you do on Tuesday, you know, four weeks from now is gonna be on the air and people are gonna listen to you. I go to the producer and say, we gotta do this, this, this. And you know, the pace just means that you get yes a lot more than I would ever get on a feature where it's gotta be run up the producerial flagpole to the top and then it comes back down, no. And that took two weeks. So See, it's, I find it's a whole different ballgame. With doing, with doing TV for me on a strictly creative standpoint, I, I get to do more. On a show like Cellular or any feature, really the first day of shooting, I'm, I try to have the whole job prepped and in my prop trailer for day one of shooting. So it's babysitting for me for the next 10 plus weeks, however long, 15 weeks. On TV, I'm always doing something. There's always a new script. And 100%. In, okay. in that respect, it's definitely more rewarding. I find myself leaving the job far more proud of it and actually closer to the crew because I feel, especially on an out-of-town job, that we've been through a lot. I, and I now that my son is in college, I could start, I, I feel a little more at ease doing out-of-town jobs. This Please. is where Skid probably magically brings us to cellular somehow and you know, ties this together. I, I wanted to say, Go. because, you know, Scott, I wanted to, uh, you mentioned cellular, and it's funny that you did, because I think that's what we'd like to talk about today. Um, as far as uh, feature work for both of you, again, this is back in uh, 2004, so, Scott, were you doing more heavily features at that time when you when you got all, all I was doing was features. Also, the big difference in 2004 is that TV didn't have as many outlets. So now yeah, between Netflix and Amazon and blah, 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 there's just tons of television. But yeah, but 2004, all I was doing was features. Let's um, follow up on that, Scott, as far as what the challenges were on cellular specifically with uh, the prop department. I think the, the big challenge was is that I, I think their eyes were a little bit bigger than their stomach on cellular. I, I do remember the, the prop budget being semi-modest. So as much as the film was definitely theatrical bound, it certainly had a, a theatrical cast, the, the, the budget was, I think, a couple steps below what the aspirations of the job were. Yeah, I'm fully going to agree with that because, you know, if you if you take where New Line was there, you know, and, you know, what this film was for them. And I think it grew over time and it, it raised its esteem a little bit. David Ellis was not, you know, an A-list director. He was coming in off, you know, final something. Uh, final Destination. Final Destination 2. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was it was a mid-tier genre picture. And suddenly this big cast gets aboard and, you know, it starts elevating. I think they added a little bit more money to it, as I recall, than was originally the intention when they set out to make it. I also think that David Ellis being a stuntman, we had a much bigger stunt crew than a movie of this size would typically have. So with a much bigger stunt crew, everything that needed to build around that, like having more police chases, more, more action scenes, I would need to prop bigger. So he might've been getting a deal on the stunts, but I wasn't getting a deal on the props, especially <laughs> like that day that we were shooting down on the beach down in Santa Monica, we had a ton of extras. And I remember they wanted me to give prop cell phones to every background. 
Right. Which there was it, no way. You know, it starts out in the script. It's like, oh, a sea of cell phones. You know, so I had almost 500 people there. So we we filled that pier with people. It's and, it might be one of my biggest background days ever in Los Angeles. It was and everybody, insane. I remember having to have everybody use their own cell phone. Yeah, and that was 2000. It was actually 2003. We're shooting it. Right. It was uh, the fall of 2003. Came out in 2004. Although we did reshoots in twice in 2004, as I recall, before it got released. Oh, really? You know, no. So let's talk some more about those pier scenes. Yeah, there were a lot of folks there, but we didn't even fully control the pier. It seemed like a lot of the re- a lot of uh, real life people were coming through as well. I, I remember that being a couple of times. How many days were we out there? Do you guys recall? Uh, off the top of my head, seven. As we I look over here at my notes right next to me on my right side here, but seven, yes. <laughs> and we went back for a reshoot day as well. I remember the reshoot day well. There were several reshoot days. <laughs> the, the opening of the film was a reshoot with uh, her the taking opening? the boy to the bus. That was never in the movie. It used to open just with the people smashing in the door, and it, it felt um, too abrupt. That scene, actually, the scene with them walking the kid to the bus, my son is in that scene. He's in the little uh, Fisher-Price Jeep driving up the that. street. That that part was definitely shot during principal photography. The the, the dialogue at the uh, the corner next to the bus stop. We, okay, uh, that we, I, we, that we, I we went back and reshot. Now, when you're talking about doing reshoots on the pier, um, I know there's things we did on the pier that didn't make the movie. I know there's this huge concert scene. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, G-Love and Special Sauce. That's <laughs> Where right. Where are they now? They're not in the movie oh, at all, now. right? That all ended up on the uh, floor. Their their music plays a couple times throughout. They use some of their songs, but uh, now that stuff didn't make. It was supposed to intercut through the third act, like during these chase sequences. We'd cut to you know the the band going on, and it just slowed things down tremendously. What I find so interesting now, having done that bit many times since, I think every movie I've ever worked on where they try to work a band in it, that scene always (laughs) gets cut. I just did Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, and they had a we did a big band scene in Vegas. Whole thing was cut out of the movie. I think it just slows the movie down to a yeah. stop. If you, if you think you're going to go from an action sequence intercut to some guy on the stage, you know, bopping around to a song nobody's heard, right. it's not going to happen. On on Cellular, I remember the day of when they were putting this concert together. David Ellis wanted to have everybody in the audience with glow sticks. So I had to send somebody downtown. It's a day to, scene. To get well, we shot it. We we shot it into the night. Uh, we lost the light. Um, <laughs> Promise it's got to intercut with a daylight chase. We had to get hundreds and hundreds of glow sticks. They they wanted the rings. They wanted the headgear. The glowing oh, glasses. Oh, I totally remember those rings because I took like dozens of them home and gave them to my kids. Yeah. At night. the end of the day, we had so yeah, many of them, and they had like handfuls of these things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that I didn't remember. So this is why the cross-departmental stuff comes in handy. Uh, yeah, that uh, that got cut. You know, I guess a lot of stuff got cut. I had another memory of, um, uh, I, I think that we had um, Eric Christian Olsen in the big uh, whale suit and uh, crowd surfing yeah. that group. That got cut. He does end up, yeah. he does end up on the whale suit and seeing the movie again. Reminding me, he's on uh, he's on your show now, right? He's on NCIS LA. He's been in it for nine years. Olson has actually sort of like chased me my whole career. I I did his first day of shooting ever, you know, in 1999. He was like 20 years old, and he came in for a day player on a CBS show called Turks, which he does remember because he was so excited that he got paid to act. He got a check. He was super excited. So then I ended up doing this movie with him, which is crazy. And then, uh, you know, 10 years on NCIS. And uh, yeah, 
it's bizarre. He was actually in the running for the lead of it because Chris Evans was almost a nobody at that point as well. So when they decided they weren't going to bring in, you know, a big celeb, they were seeing everybody. They read 300 people for that part. ECO and Chris were right there together at the end. They were also friends before that. So it's kind of fun. They were in the movie together. And yes, he was in a giant whale costume and he improved most of that stuff. He was 22 years old back then. So it's Chris, actually. Chris was 22 when he did that movie. Wow, Chris was that young? Yeah. Can you believe it? Wow, that's tough to hook. Isn't it, though? Because, I mean, he came in and he, he kind of felt like he's the guy, you know? He had to carry that movie, truly, and it works, you know? You're not embarrassed for him. No, no, not at all. Uh, admittedly, I had forgotten that he was in it until I, I pulled it back up. But, of course, I was only there for a couple of days with the, with the Pierce stuff and the large crowds. So I didn't have a lot of back and forth with the actors, but it seemed like a pretty good group of folks. I had his a blast. Girl, his girlfriend was Jessica Beale at the time, and uh, they were really going out, and she's really his girlfriend in the movie. So, hmm, which came first there? You decide. Well, let's talk. Let's talk. Go back to something we mentioned earlier about David Ellis and his background as a, a stuntman, and then sort of what he brought to the movie in that area. I know that uh, it seemed like there were a lot of stunts. Throughout the film. Yeah. And if you look at David's opus of work, you know, that's where he came from. And as he moved into directing features, you know, that's exactly what happened. They started giving him stunt related features or features with dogs. You know, it was great. It just became a segue of what he already did. He had a cadre of stunt players, which was his family and friends. If you go back and watch the commentaries on these shows, it's just him talking with his friends, which is his sister and his daughter and his family. And that that's what making those movies work. It was just a tight little group of people that have worked together for a, a long time having fun. And that's the David led that. It was crazy. Those sets, you know, I did five movies with David and, you know, I, I miss him tremendously. He was a really good, good egg. I have to agree. I, I David. He made it a lot of fun, and I remember David never putting any stress out there. I mean, he had a lot of a lot of wants, a lot of requirements, but I do not remember I do not remember going through those days with a knot in my stomach. No, not at all. It, it wasn't his style. It just he couldn't get excited about bad things. He'd jump up and down like a little boy when he was excited about something fun and good that was happening. Something went right. He played tricks and games. And doing five films with him, you start realizing it's it's the same games. You know, he'd have his like donut eating contest. And I remember hysterical. doing I remember how many times on that set it just seemed like they were betting on everything. I remember one day uh, Dannon, the craft service guy. Okay. They'd had this bet who could keep their arm in a cooler full of ice water the longest. And somehow Dannon was able to turn off his arm and leave it in there until everybody else pulled it out in pain. When I saw the movie again, guys, I noticed that there's there a big car wreck scene on the highway. I'm pretty sure that Chris Evans is driving against a blue screen. Did you guys have some stage work with that as well and have to edit that in? Or was that something you added in much later? I, I got to say, my memory of we, we did all of this stuff practical. And yeah, Chris I, I specifically remember. went to driving school. He was there for a few weeks. So Chris did everything the studio would let us do, Chris did. You know, he was the, the Mick rig, which I can't really describe, but it's kind of an insane vehicle where you drop the actor in and then you do drive at 150 miles an hour and do donuts and crazy stuff. He, he was strapped in there for all of that. And some of the gags, 
I, I don't, if it was coverage of Chris, we were really doing it in my experience. What do you the remember, only, Scott? The only semi green screen I remember doing, we shot it over at LA Center Studios. And it was the bit where, or on the top of LA Center Studios, he jumps into the, um, the, yeah, that tube, crash, the construction crash tube. tubes. Yep. And then we did that on a stage where we see him going through the tube. And we did some work around that. But I really don't remember much green screen on that movie. Fair enough. Yeah. That may have just been the way um, the, the way I caught it. Or he's having a conversation, obviously, on the phone in his car. And I think there's wreckage stuff going on behind him. So it's not clear how close that is. But that is the challenge with these stunt stunt heavy things that having to shoot them all the different angles and, and, and figure out how it all goes together. Sure. I, I do remember, gotta also, remember that, you know, David being a stunt guy, you know, his first and foremost choice is always to do it real. The visual effects department, God love them, you know, would play second fiddle to anything David wants to do. That reminds me of another scene um, in the movie. And this comes back to Scott with the props. I felt like not only was everyone on phones, but even in the driving scenes, it seemed like everybody in their car was on phones as well. Is that intentional? I, I'm assuming so, but well, wondering to what degree sure, that, you guys are both involved. That in. I, remember, I remember that even being scripted because the only person who could have that Nokia phone was Chris Evans' character. But then we had just bags of other Nokia phones that we used for, for hero footage for other people. Yeah, there was, a, there was a bunch of times, I think in the beginning, they're even building up how everybody is on a cell phone in the car. And surprisingly, I have so many of those still. They're in a just a box of old cell phones that just I, I need to start getting rid of. It's amazing how quickly that technology. You're, you're saying old. those don't belong in a museum? Those early cell phones, when they were going from just being cell phones to being smartphones, it's right when phones started coming out in different colors. I have phones that are like these metallic plastic phones and all of that stuff. Nokia just pretty much gave me their entire inventory and catalog of what they were carrying at the time. But with the exception of the 6600, which hadn't been released yet, so they were very Correct. controlling of that little device. Right, the 6600 that I had, I can't remember now. It, it had partial functionality. I do I remember, remember it lit that. up, but it, we couldn't make calls or anything on it, right? Right, right. The, the video the ones, didn't work. The ones that lit up, I went to uh, ISS Prop House, and they had a mold and remake them. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> that one I still have. And that had a, a little LED light that they put into it with a, a fake screen. It's amazing that Nokia, since this was a huge infomercial for them, couldn't get us a working phone. Because we were shooting, what, like August, September? The thing came out at the end of October. October, so it, it came must out have been done right. But when but when we started prepping, they hadn't had they hadn't released the phone yet. I'm sure by the time we were done shooting, I think it was about the time it, they started releasing it. But when we were prepping and when we were shooting, hadn't come out yet, and they were very concerned about about whose hands it was in. And then they went on to sell 150 million of them, and I recall it could record video, right? It was the first it was one that to, could actually record video, and it, it was able to record it. video. And I remember being able to go online with it. They gave me one after the movie. And I had one. I used one for a couple months. But at the time when you would go online, you had to go on the regular internet with it. So if you wanted to go on eBay with it, it crawled. It was so slow. Well, I remember it could only record like 20 seconds of video. So Something like movie, that, yeah. The movie no isn't actually possible with its 45-second video clip. But right. 
<laughs> Besides the uh, uh, doing the inf infomercial work for uh, for Nokia, it seemed like there was a lot of other product placement on this one as well. More than others you've seen? Less? What do you guys think of that? I don't think it was more. I think that the, the film was very wholesome. And having done a lot of product placement over the years, when it's they tend to like features more than television. And if there's no sex or gory violence in it, they'll give you pretty much anything you want. And I know that when I hit up all the product placement companies and that, they were giving me everything and anything I wanted for that movie. They loved that Kim was in it. William H. Macy had a very high brow because he had been doing a lot of uh, independent films. So he was very well liked. And they gave me everything I wanted on that. I remember having everything from potato chips to sodas. All the, I remember William H. Macy had a, uh, he had that spa going. Yes. I remember getting a lot of the, the various products for his spa, lining the shelves with that. The Oakley sunglasses. I would get boxes of those sunglasses and uh, David Ellis and all his people would just jump upon me and, and grab every pair of free sunglasses they could get. That's what I'm saying. The, the whole Ellis team that sort of moves around like a pack, you know, and I know he was also getting his his peeps in there. You know, I remember he had like somebody that made surfboards that gave us surfboards and yep, I got surfboards, um, yeah. Jewelry, surf, somebody who liked to, he had a jewelry company. He provided a lot of the actors jewelry. Let's talk some more about on the stunts, because I know that not all of it went as planned, um, but it never does. But on this one particularly, what maybe uh, did not align the way he had it had it written out on the day. I was surprised with actually how well it did go. But at that time, there was not a ton of stuff shooting in L.A. So we we had like the pick of the finest stunt players in Hollywood. So everybody driving those cars, you know, were crazy good. The guy we had driving for Chris Evans for that chase down the freeway, the the, the wrong way chase, that was insane. You know, that's not special effects there. We, we did long sequences with 50 cars all choreographed through there. Flipping that truck with the trailer, we actually did twice. So the gag didn't go off right. It didn't make it over very well so we did it twice but nobody got hurt the only injury that i recall in the entire thing was uh oakley who was chris evans stunt double when he jumped off the pier popped his shoulder out when he hit the water but still had the presence of mind to swim away as i recall with one arm so that it wouldn't ruin the shot popped it back in stuck him in an ambulance and he went off he was dating Tawny at the time, and then they got married later on. They're still together. They have two or three kids right now, so happy what is, ending what is all Tawny, around. What is Tawny up to nowadays? I you, don't you, know what she's doing for work. She's not producing, if that's the question. Right. That's what I was wondering, if, yeah. if she was able to stay in it after her father passed away. You know, I won't speak for her, but I always know that her reason for being on set was because she wanted to be next to her dad. Right. And of course. I can't say it was a, a passion for producing. But anybody that knew David just wanted to spend time with him. I went to the swamps of Louisiana to be with him because it's just that good of a time. I right. do not think I will ever be on a, a set quite like David's. You know, you kind of most of the time forget you're making a movie when you were working with David. Yeah, I think he so. forgot it was one of the problems <laughs> over time. <laughs> he thought he was hanging out with his, his friends, having some fun, blowing stuff up, you know. And in the meantime, the cameras were rolling and then he got to show it to America. Right. How long was the shoot? Oh, let's say 51 days plus the reshoot. Now, when you talked about the reshoots, you mentioned earlier shooting some of the earlier stuff 
some of the dialogue in the earlier scenes to help set it up a little bit for the movie. Um, what other things, if you can share, were done on the reshoots? I, I'm going to need some help on that because I do not have the schedules. If anybody remembers, <laughs> they were they were a lot of little pieces. You know, after the test screenings, it, we went back to sharpen a lot of stuff. There were no entirely new sequences cut in. It was a, a lot of bits. It seems like it was less than a week in April, and then we came back for a one-day shoot in July, as I recall. That's all I remember, I remember doing about that. one of the scenes with a bunch of SWAT or police gear because I I do remember having to rent a bunch of police police armor and and weapons and stuff for I believe the first go through of of uh, reshoots. That's probably that scene down in the parking lot at the end. I don't remember yeah. SWAT ever getting involved. Until it might not have been SWAT. It might have just been heavy police gear. But yeah. I did have to. I do remember having to rent a ton of police gear. Well, I remember we did the police station at L.A. Center, right? We built right. that in there. Yep. Well, all our stages were at L.A. Center. I did my first four movies at L.A. Center. I actually didn't know people shot anywhere else in L.A. I was getting kind of redundant. So I was kind of excited. And now I've been on Paramount for the last, you know, 10 years. So production offices were at L.A. Center Studios as well, correct? When we were shooting, post-production was down in Santa Monica. Okay. Because I think I met David editing. for the first. Was his personal office in Santa Monica? It could have been. I don't think he had a freestanding office before okay. the show. Okay. Because that would take him a long way from Malibu and the beach, which is where he wanted to be. Right. We had a, a great running gag that we could tell how early we were going to wrap based upon the surf reports. So <laughs> we would see how the surf was in the afternoon and darned if that wouldn't really set our wrap time because he really thought it'd be good to be done by five because you could still catch some waves which is a very civilized way to make a, a motion picture. I've worked with a couple of directors like that over the years who always had something, something else very important going on. I did a movie with Rob Reiner and he was the same thing. We, we never took lunch and he couldn't wait to be done. We would do eight and 10 hour days. It, it's funny. People might think that's bad, but I think it's, I think it's good. You know, there is no, you know, there's no shame in getting your stuff done in a timely fashion and going home. It, it, it makes for better mental health. I just got a shot list for what I'm shooting tomorrow, and it's like four pages long. And it's like, why? You know, it's a TV show. We don't need four pages of shots. But And you do 22 episodes? Uh, we're doing 24. We wow. do 24. Yeah. Yeah, we've done 24 every year. Some day, some seasons, which is super smart, we end up banking some from the following season so we can shift the summer break. Everybody has kids, right? Because mm -hmm. normally, sorry to digress, but on a TV show, you're done at like April and then you start back at the end of June, which is kind of ridiculous if you have kids. So we try to bank some episodes from the following season, shoot through May, and then don't come back to August. Wow, that's terrific. Well, it, it's the benefit of being on a show that runs forever, you know, when you know it's just going to go on, you know, and you're not living day by day. Right. So, guys, you guys have a lot of fond memories of the show. Anything that's favorite or experiences that really stick out on my, this one? My, one of my favorite memories, when we're on top of the building uh, at L.A. Center stage, Stages, what used to be the Union 76 building, there's a scene where the phone has to drop and it falls eight floors or whatever, and it's supposed to smash on the ground. And the, the, the leading belief was, let's just drop the phone and it'll break on its own. I dropped that phone from 
from the from the roof of that building and it fell about eight floors and i remember my assistant was down on the ground danny rowe was down on the ground to retrieve it and it bounced it hit the corner and it bounced and it did not break and we tried it several times and the phone would not break and finally i had to take it to the prop truck i had a bunch of little jewelers screwdrivers and i had to take the whole thing apart and find a way so that it didn't break in midair as it was falling but that when it hit the ground it was able to burst into a million pieces but i just remember thinking how typical that when i drop the phone and it smashes it doesn't break apart I, I've broken an iPhone dropping it a foot and a half, you know, onto sand and it shatters. It's like right. insane. Right. you can't get that thing to drop. And then if, you know, in the movie, if you recall, there's a there's like one visual effect shot in between there of like a phone dangling in space as it falls. So and then it cuts to it shattering, which is a great shot. Well, um, it was the same thing when um, when when the phone gets busted up, when Kim is in the attic. That oh, was right. the, that was the same bit. That was an old 1970s rotary dial phone, and you could smash that thing into concrete, and it wouldn't break. So we <laughs> had to have that phone recast. I had about five of them, and the phone was cast into a very brittle plastic. So now we're just at the opposite. In the scene before Kim breaks it, she has to hold on to it and be very, very uh, careful and very delicate handling it. And when they did want it to smash, then it smashed like it was glass. Yeah, but, Jason came in with, what, a bat or something and started pounding on it. And it just correct. turned to dust. That phone was actually working. We had that phone connected to a, to a box. So when Kim was connecting the various wires, uh, they wanted to be able to feed her lines. So they wanted the script supervisor or somebody on the other end of that phone. So that was a closed circuit phone going to a box to another phone and and so and we were actually talking to her at the time and a little zinger chris evans actually came in because he was 22 year old chris evans but chris came in and did the off camera for jessica on those days which were all at the end of the schedule if you guys recall because we only had her for a very short little window of time which I, was less I, than two weeks i do remember showing kim saying it was very when she reconnected the phone that the wires all had to go to the correct terminals, that it wasn't just randomly set, that she was making the phone operate. So she did have to do it correct. So I do remember that taking a couple times that she would get that right, otherwise the, the phone wouldn't work. Do you remember that she was very, very into the performance? She would, uh, you know, she had her uh, headphones on. She wanted to stay very isolated yes. during that that sequence so i had a joy working with her i loved working with her i remember everybody at first was very concerned about working with her that she was going to be very demanding and this and that and i thought she was absolutely delightful she was very delightful to me anyway well what's interesting is she came in and like treated this movie like it was you know russian literature i mean she dove into it and and took everything a hundred percent and you know when his method is I've seen an actress go in a great long time. Some of I those. Think a, I think that's fall. important. It is important. It's unexpected, you know, but she did it and it shows up on screen. You definitely get the sense that she's getting roughed around. Some of that stuff she and Jason did, you might recall, is was not blocked out and was not rehearsed. And she specifically didn't want to spend any time with Jason before he first came into that room. 
So it's interesting the way the schedule laid out because we only got her for two weeks is the very first scene she shot was at the pier. So we did all our work at the pier for like six days. And then on the last day she came in and met Chris and they had their reunion, which is the end of the movie. That's the first thing she shot in the movie. And then we went, shot the kidnapping and then went straight into the attic set and finished out the movie in the attic set with her locked me, in there by herself. With, with Kim, she was sweet to me every single day. And I have this, and I still have the collection. I had it going since the early nineties, the last day of shooting. I get a picture of the cast flipping me off. And it, it started on a movie that I worked on with uh, uh, Kevin Pollack. And every time we took a continuity photo of him, he would be flipping me off. So it just became a thing. And every show I've worked on now, I have this huge book of photos of actors flipping me off. And her assistants kept going, oh, Kim will never do that. I wouldn't ask her. You're going to upset her. And the last day of shooting, I go, Kim, I have a question for you. And she's like, oh, sure. What is it? She thought I was you know, going to hit her up for an autograph. And I told her I had this, this collection going. She's like, oh, yeah, no problem. And I have this great photo of her just like that to me. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, she's an Oscar winning actress and she does a wide range of, you know, drama to comedy and a whole bunch of different types of parts in this show. She is so in one mode, you know, universally being beaten and crying. It's like that was my sense of her because she stayed that way for so much of the shooting day. It was just exhausting. It was exhausting yeah. for her. She was wiped by the end of the day. I'm going to say this. It's not out of turn. I've never seen this. An actress have this in Hollywood, but she was portal to portal. You know, her day began at her house. We pick her up, drive her to set because she wanted to focus so much on the movie. And her day did not end until we brought her back to her house at the end of the day, just so she could stay entirely focused on this movie, Cellular, which is, I'm not dissing the movie, but wow, that is a commitment and unexpected. And then just the rest of the cast, you know, the bad, getting Statham in there, you know, he's what he is, you know. And also, you know, the other two guys were stuntmen turned actors, the other bad guys. So all three of those guys were doing a remarkable amount of their own fighting and stunts and because that's what jason you know that's what they do and that's what uh, the director responded to was the perfect little blend it's a perfect little genre movie i'm actually surprised it only has a 55 on uh, rotten tomatoes because if you read some of those reviews a lot of them are like they're not really saying anything's wrong with it they're just kind of not wanting to admit that they just watched a two-hour film about a guy on a cell phone I think a lot of that is critical snobbery. Cellular was never meant to be put on anybody's top 10 list. And I, I find a lot, I've done a lot of jobs where when we're done with the show, we feel we've accomplished everything we wanted to set out to do. And when I did Mall Cop 2, we knew the critics were going to absolutely hate it. You go to see <laughs> you that never movie, know. Audience, Come on. The people who saw it absolutely love it. And it was never anything more than the filmmakers intended it to be. And I think cellular is that and more. Yeah. Well, as I, as I said, it raised itself slightly above what the material should have been. So the cast uniformly with Macy and Statham and, you know, uh, Chris Evans right before he took off, you know, there's no weak spots right there. Yeah, it, it kind of works. You know, you probably shouldn't make a phone about a specific technology because it doesn't age too well, but... Now it's a period genre piece. Well, I was even at the time, I remember thinking that the the novelty of a phone 
that a novelty of a phone that you could drive around in the car with and he could stay in touch with her. I think even at the time we were over that peak already. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that a lot of the the drama and the, the thrill to that movie was the phone losing its service. If you well, remember- we still have that. <laughs> but, but to the point where, you know, the battery was going, the battery was dying and he was in and out of service. And, and that again, it was also owing to the time and the technology. Now service, you could drive from LA to Vegas and talk all the way. That was something I think that was more, more into the thrill making of the movie, the drawbacks of the technology more so than the convenience of the technology. Which kind of points to how the studio thought of it as a as a one-off movie that wasn't going to stick around for generations. You know, when a studio right. thinks they have a long-term project or sequels, uh, they'll try to make it a little bit more universal. You just made me remember when you were talking product placement. One of the things that David insisted on was Red Bull, because you know, between his team, they would drink 50 Red Bulls a day. So you'll notice all through the movie, there's the Red Bull truck and Red Bull refrigerators, and we had a lot of Red Bull. Crafty. I, I still have an amazing relationship with Red Bull. I had been working with Red Bull for about four years at that point. I had gotten them for the first time, I believe, in a, one of the American Pie movies. And I was able to, I remember hooking them up. Doug Curtis, I couldn't, Doug Curtis would drink like 10 Red Bulls a day. I remember him coming back on a Monday saying, he goes, Scotty, no matter what I say, you're not to give me any more Red Bulls. He said that it was just <laughs> killing his stomach. But now still every job I do, Red Bull is always there willing to give me product. I almost think that's part of their marketing strategy, not obviously besides the product placement to be associated with particularly action movies or to have a large presence on that. Or do you think it's just more general what they're trying to do? I think they're not. They're certainly Red Bull does not have the requirements that some more common brands like Coca-Cola is very tough to get. Like I said, if there's if there's too much sex or violence or it's not politically correct, Coke will pull back. Uh, I've gotten uh, I've gotten Red Bull into shows. I just did a Netflix show called Dear White People, and there's a lot of drug use, a lot of sex. It's a very racially charged show, and Red Bull supplied me all the product I needed to have kids drinking it in the dorms and so forth. I've never ever had Red Bull say, "Nah, this project isn't for us." And I think because their their core audience is not as uptight about that kind of stuff. Their core audience is probably 16 to 30 year olds. And I don't think they're as opinionated about what the project is gonna be. Yes, that I believe. They're definitely opinionated. They're not opinionated about the project. Correct. A yeah. couple of those uh, late teens myself. Yes, they have opinions. Eric, how old is, how, yeah. how old? What's your oldest? Uh, the oldest is 20. Uh, my baby was actually born on this show and she's turning 15 this year. Uh, it was like two days before the tech scout. So I was at the hospital, had the baby. I left the hospital to go on the tech scout. So there's a cellular connection to my, uh, my youngest. My son totally grew up on movie sets. It's amazing to me. I can remember every, every show I had, I've worked on. I just remember the day that he came to set. It's it's funny. Yeah. You can't actually put those little markers, the yardstick through time. It's like, oh, yeah, that was this show, this show, this yep. show. They're this tall, this tall, this tall. Well, that's how I remember Cellular, because he was the little six-year-old kid in that opening shot in that Jeep. That was one of the main reasons I went out and bought the DVD when it came out. 
Well, and have you sat down and watched it with him recently? Did you tell him you're going to talk it through? And- we, we watched it. We watched it not too long ago. I'm always very proud of everything I've worked on, even shows, even shows that I that I, I know critically didn't do well. Maybe even the audience didn't do well. I, I, I do have copies. Everything I've worked on, if it comes out on DVD, I will buy a copy of it. And I do have a shelf of of a of my my resume, essentially, on, on video. I do as well. Cool. I mean, not uh, not the things that I don't have cellular. Uh, I had to get it through Netflix and uh, it's not streaming. So I had to have him send me send me the copy. Um, but because uh, I was only there a couple of days. Um, uh, but, yeah, the stuff that I've worked on longer. But see, as an AD, you tended to do more day playing where I the only time in the last 20 years I could think where I've day played are where a prop master might get sick and there's a weapons day and they need somebody else with a weapons permit to come in and fill in for them. And that's very rare. I tend to only prop master and I do the full show. I'm not the guy they're gonna call when they need to bring in additional prop people to handle background, for good or bad. On a day like, going back to that uh, huge beer scenes, did you bring in extra people to manage the props? Oh yeah, yeah. I usually try to have one prop person, depending on how big the day is, for about every 25 people, I like to have one prop person and that day, I remember we had product placement. I remember we had a ton of backpacks and we needed to get backpacks out. Everybody had to have cans of soda and food in their hands. Uh, so there was just a lot of people to to wrangle. There were hundreds of people. It was quite literally 500. And answer yeah. to your question, the pier was open, but we started at 6.15 that morning. So it was dead, which was great. You know, We were having a good go of it, if you recall, but as the day progressed, and then we started getting relays mixed in there. It started getting super chaotic. So we definitely had the day engineered to do the big, long crane shot, that opening crane shot of everybody walking by the arcade. We did that stuff first up. And then some of the running stuff with Chris through the crowd we got to so that by the time the throngs of people were there by midday, we could uh, get more contained back by the rail and whatnot. That camera that breaks, there's the camera that they smash on the pier. Kim's husband had taken that video. So I had gone to Sears to buy that camera and I bought about six of them. And I remember the day I bought those, my son really was hoping he could score his first video camera, um, my young budding filmmaker. And that day I wanted nothing more than, than to be able to give one of those cameras to him at the end of the day. And as we were going through them, I just watched them one by one getting smashed. And as it worked out, I think we did have one or two left over at the end of the day. And he he got it. Well, I want to revisit the idea of um when you do those big days, Eric. Like like I said, we met on this on this set. I came in really basically just to help wrangle that background, get him to set. I was uh, I was actually kind of specializing in that at the time. Um, but how many other folks do we have? Like how many how many PAs did you have on the show regularly, and how many joined us? Just for these big we, shooting scenes. We were just carrying two as staff, but, you know, I'm sure we had 10 at least that day. You know, that's what I would need for to control a space that big. And we were carrying an additional second through the run of the show, which was Jose, wasn't it? So Hernandez. And uh, there probably must have been another additional, right? I don't know who, but I couldn't have done 500 people with just one additional AD. So we must have had more people come in. Like I don't the DGA know. is about to get pretty mad at me. <laughs> I mean, on my show, I bring an additional for each 75 people. We got to check in. So 
there's a lot of humans out there. <laughs> I remember standing with Paula in the middle of that, just looking around going, this is nuts. This is a lot of people. <laughs> and then you had Benjamin, who was the first AD, you know, he'd be sitting back at the monitor. And I remember during that sequence, he's like, why is that fisherman looking at me? And I'm like, where? You know, there's 500 people there. He's like, get that fisherman. <laughs> I'm like, Paula, do you see a fisherman? And we, none of us see a fisherman. So it's like, oh, okay. So maybe it's in the movie. Maybe there's some crazy fisherman staring at the camera and it's in the movie. I never saw it. One thing I will say, Eric, one of the memories I do have of that job is how much I love the AD department yes. in, in, in that film. I remember when when I first when we first started Bluetooth, we were talking, uh, Skid and I were talking about this the other day, Bluetooth technology had just come out. And I remember you were all about it. You were talking to me going, make sure the phones have Bluetooth. You're going to love Bluetooth. And I remember being in the production office during prep. And I've always been very technically comfortable. And I remember you and I sitting down and your phone had Bluetooth and mine did not. Yeah, my little tiny Sony and, Ericsson had Bluetooth. I don't know I why. I just remember <laughs> you showing me Bluetooth. And other than just the word itself, I thought sounded very peculiar. I just didn't get what the point of that term meant. But I do remember you and I going over the technology and Benji as an AD, I adored him. I found everybody helpful. Information was always given. And I've been pretty fortunate. I've tended to get along with the AD departments on almost all the shows I've worked on. But of the memories that I take from that show, I do remember everyone in your department being extremely cooperative and very easy and enjoyable to deal with. Awesome. <laughs> you know, Benji is just a big teddy. First of all, thank you for saying that. You know, I'd done a couple shows with Benjamin and uh, he kind of brought me in, but all at the same time, I had done so many shows with David. So it was this strange thing that we were both kind of brought in simultaneously. But it was kind of just a kismet little show for us. You know, there was there was no stress or misery on that show. I mean, the biggest right. misery is we were doing a pilot for CBS at the time cold case. Remember that show? Mm -hmm. And it got it got picked up. We had done the pilot and it got picked up. And like two days later, David called and said, hey, I, my movies go. Come on over. So we left that pilot and left people in a lurch. It was bad. The producer said, we'll never work for CBS again, which, you know, I felt bad about. Of course, now I just worked for them for 10 years. So but it was it was that good of an experience that we were all willing to leave a one year job, you know, to go off and do this little feature because it's like you want to work on a set like that. I guess you get the people you want to work with and you stay with them. Very true. You guys both have really positive memories of uh, of the show, but is there anything that um, you would consider a lesson learned or something you would do differently? You know, for me, I really, I mean, I'm sure if this was weeks or months after the production had wrapped, I might have it, but there's certainly nothing that left any scars or, or visible wounds on me. And, and there are shows that I've done, some before that and some after, where I do know things I would do differently and complaints that I did have. But... With cellular, no. I mean, there's really, there's nothing I take away from that that was that big a deal at the time. David ran an absolutely wonderful, fun set. The actors were all accessible. You know, the, the AD department, like I told you, who I tend to work with very directly, never had a problem with information. Doug Curtis, who I worked, that's how I got on the film, through Doug. Doug is always great with me. I, I really know. I mean, it, it is a model for what I hope to experience. It's one of the reasons I got into the film business. I felt very collaborative also. David David was very open to ideas. 
I do remember a bunch of things I had suggested in that movie that we ended up doing it certain ways. And David was always willing to, to go with it if it was as good, if not better than what he had thought of. I, I got to second that, but you know, I've already trumped up David's praises. I mean, what's interesting is, yes, this was a great film to work on, but it doesn't necessarily end up making a great film like we talked about, but it was the right group of people for the right material at the time. This creative group of people, if not us, but people above our pay grade, probably would not have been able to do, you know, Game of Thrones or, you know, something on Showtime. But at this time, this material, it was perfect. It's people that wanted to be there and making just almost just this side of like a home movie, doing the stuff that they have fun doing, chasing cars, blowing stuff up. Too often our job is remembered by the audience based on the success of the movie. A little while ago when I started talking about Mall Cop 2, Eric, you kind of smiled at that one because the critics absolutely tore it apart. I mean, I think it won a Razzie, but that was the same kind of situation. The director, Andy Fickman on that, is as wonderful to work with as you could ever hope for. I've done a bunch of movies with Andy over the years. His sets are incredibly joyful. Everybody who worked on Mall Cop, um, I'm still friends with a bunch of those people now four years later. And it was the same kind of experience. So it's, it's very interesting how that when the film might not be met with criti critical success, our, what we personally take out of it could be something totally different. And I found movies like, like Cellular had a very, what I remember is like high school drama club, where when the film wrapped, I do remember being very sad to leave. Lauren, I can't remember her last name, Lauren, one of the producers. Yeah. I remember her crying in the parking lot. She's like hugging me goodbye. And she's like, oh, you know, it's been so wonderful. And she had tears in her eyes. And that doesn't happen every time. I, that is my best memory of Cellular, that it, and I hate using the expression, it had a very family group feeling, but Cellular was one of those jobs that truly for me did have that. Well, I think those stories you guys have told, perhaps uh, folks who haven't seen it will check it out, or those who haven't seen it in a long time can, uh, can, can go back and give it another visit. Thanks, guys. This has been a lot of fun. It yeah, was. It's been a lot of fun for me, too. our show. Special thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wong for our logo. Both might have been possible without their efforts, but neither would have been good. I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. There's also a Facebook page. You can find us at Podcast Blow the Line One Word. Next episode, my guests and I discuss 2003's Seabiscuit. In case you want to watch the game before listening. Either way, hope you'll join us then.